This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. Higher and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? My guest is Leanne Gray. She's a psychologist, educator, and speaker on numerous topics, including self-compassion, mindfulness awareness, LGBTQ youth, gender, and gifted in special education. She's the founder of the Connect Group, which offers innovative approaches to education, and the co-creator of Empathic Education for a Compassionate Nation. And She's the author of Educational Trauma, Examples from Testing to the School-to-Prison Pipeline, which presents a scathing analysis of our educational system 
and how it traumatizes our children, especially children of color and LGBTQ youth. So before we get into educational trauma, how did social consciousness, education, trauma, and empathetic awareness come together for you, and where did it begin? Social consciousness, trauma, education, and empathy all come together for me in terms of social consciousness being the egg, let's say, the seed of awareness that leads to understanding and visualizing trauma as it's occurring. Then we have education as the system of learning and teaching and exploring. And empathy would be the chicken that should come out of all of that. And it should also surround the entire process. So from the egg to the chicken, at least, social consciousness is the awareness that we bring to the unintentional and inadvertent harm caused every day in schools and the empathy that is needed as a result of social consciousness to heal trauma and mitigate the pains and inadvertent harm in education. And then you wondered, how did I come to this? And it was a very long decade and a half journey, actually, that began around 2010 when my two-and-a-half-mile commute from my office to my home took almost an hour. There were nine schools and 9,000 people that were locked down in my small Los Angeles middle-class community because a school police officer had accidentally shot himself. And instead of admitting that he had fired his own firearm, he indicated that there was an active shooter in the neighborhood. This is what led to the lockdown. The local authorities felt that the students and professionals in the schools in our community were in jeopardy. The parents were not allowed to pick up their children. They were not allowed to give them afternoon medications if they needed it. They were not allowed to take them to their afternoon athletics. And unfortunately, the students had to urinate in buckets because the schools are designed in California such that there are outdoor corridors which would have exposed children to this errant shooter that was on the loose. Ultimately, the lockdown came to an end when the school police officer admitted what had happened, and the school superintendent for Los Angeles Unified School District, which is the second largest school district in the nation, basically confirmed that parents don't understand lockdown procedures and that that was the outcome for them. But I grew a very different outcome. I was very shocked by the amount of shame and humiliation the school police officer felt around the school shooting. I was very troubled by the lack of honesty and authenticity around this mistake. I was very concerned at the rush to lock down students and the trauma that was befalling the entire community as a result of this, not just the students, teachers, and families. And as a result, I started to pay very close attention to who was coming into my private practice. And I had already been noticing that the demands for ADD and ADHD diagnoses were extremely high. And if the kids weren't coming in asking for it, they already had it. And I couldn't understand why that was, given that there are 70 to 80 different reasons, medically mostly, for inattention and hyperactivity. And so I began to study, and from there, a lot of shocking revelations came. So it sounds like you were discovering 
kind of basic insanity of our culture. Sure, basic insanity is a good term. Hannah Arendt calls it the banality of evil. I think the banality of evil is just a synonym for basic insanity, that they go together just as well as education and trauma, right? Like, neither of them belong together at all, and yet at the same time they come together almost obviously. There is a certain basic insanity that allows a police officer on school campus to lie about an accident. At the same time, that's the same basic insanity that operates in our culture, as you noted, and it's a banality of evil that indoctrinates people to grow up with any kind of insanity, let alone a basic level that's collective. Yes, and also just to have police officers, particularly the way police are trained in this country, from my understanding, they generally have minimal training, especially considering that they essentially have a license to kill, and they're placed out into the community, a community that's already pretty traumatized. And when it comes to our children and schools, politicians and administrators are trying to cater to that. And so we have an insane situation spiraling out of control, it sounds like, in particularly in large urban areas like you're in. Well, that was a 10 years ago, and that was a middle-class area. You're talking about school resource officers, school police officers with low levels of training, basic levels of training, being in large urban centers, and I think you're more referring to lower-income areas than middle-class. And that's where we see life-threatening fear based in reality, right? And so the use of school police officers on any campus is actually very problematic, but putting them on the campuses in lower-income areas where we see communities of color in particular becomes a form of segregation, policing, control that we haven't seen actually since the 40s in Europe. And it's over time that we discover what doesn't work. And it's mainly our intolerance with failure that allows us to perpetuate short-sighted legislation rather than recognizing mistakes and errors without fear, as we had spoken about just a moment ago, and moving forward with new learning. And because there's so much fear in our current reality for you know, people in all socioeconomic levels and different cultures, that, that fear is driving so much decision-making. And it means that we are somewhat impaired in our ability to make good decisions in long-term planning because we are collectively in fear. Right. And recent studies in neuroscience are showing that fear essentially shuts down our ability to perceive reality and respond in appropriate ways. Yes. Fear shuts down our ability to see reality, to process information, and to make good decisions. And so you're referring to neuroscience imaging to reveal this, but we've long known this from trauma studies. And back to your first question about social consciousness and trauma, actually there's the trauma-informed and trauma-sensitive movements that are pushing these ideas about the neurological substrates of fear as resulting from traumatic experience and how that is affecting people, individuals, communities, etc. So how is all of this affecting children in school in particular? 
So children in schools over the last two decades have been reporting increased levels of mental health problems. This is widely documented from a number of different perspectives. Many of those problems are being treated with pharmaceutical treatments when they involve hyperactivity, inattention, uh, executive functioning problems. But on the other hand, we also have rising suicidality. We have rising self-harm, rising substance abuse depression, anxiety, self-image problems. The level of mental health needs in schools has exceeded the training of the school police officers, the teachers, the counselors, as well as the administrators. And I think it goes back down to this collective fear resulting from collective trauma. And as a result, all individuals at every level are having a difficult time processing information. And this is all happening in our schools where children are supposed to be learning so when you use the term educational trauma, what does that mean? And talk about how our children are treated in our education system. So trauma and fear combine to impact learning on a number of levels. As we've just discussed, there's the ability to take in information accurately that, that is impacted by trauma and fear. But then also trauma and fear tend to instigate insomnia, anxiety, depression, powerlessness, helplessness. And that is resulting in students, teachers, administrators, parents having insomnia to varying degrees. And that insomnia is leading to reduced amounts of time spent in REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. And as a result, the systems that allow memory to be encoded in a healthy and adaptive way are being impacted. So not only are students having a difficult time, students and others in the school systems, of course, but students are having a difficult time perceiving the information from their different senses. Then the trauma and fear is impacting their sleep and memory consolidation. And as a result, the output in terms of assignments and test-taking ability is reduced. We also see increased truancy in the form of school anxiety and school refusal, and ultimately for communities of color and for queer students, schools are literally dangerous places for them to go. And so at the most extreme end, we see that traumas in schools can lead students down a pathway that forever seals their fate in a secondary universe that doesn't allow them to succeed. Rios calls this the youth correctional complex, and it's a surveillance of youth, particularly students of color, through school police officers. And in so doing, it leads them down a pathway to the school-to-prison pipeline, to criminality, and ultimately to fill the prison industrial complex. So before I answer your question about what is educational trauma and how our kids treated in our schools, I'll pause there in case you have anything you want to mention. Well, what just occurred to me is that we have this education system where children are essentially being taught to follow the rules by people who have already gone through the same system, have been traumatized in many of these same ways, have been taught how to follow these rules and so there's a kind of vicious cycle, and the way you're describing things, it sounds like it's getting progressively worse. So from there, take us into educational trauma and how children are treated in our educational system. 
Okay, yes, indeed. Students are being taught rules by traumatized people, and it is creating a vicious cycle. I'm not sure it's the worst it's ever been. Actually, um, it's been very, very, very bad for quite a long time. Uh, the degree to which students are being ushered into juvenile hall are being asked to stay away from school because of gang activity not being allowed in school on test-taking days so as not to contribute to a decrease in academic performance indices which are related to funding. There are a lot of ways that this vicious cycle has been at a climax for at least 20 years and the symptoms of that are the school shootings, are the number of suicides that we've seen. And so to specify what it is that we're talking about, I call it educational trauma. I call this vicious cycle inadvertent and unintentional harm being perpetrated and perpetuated in schools every day. Students, teachers, parents, administrators, and communities are all victim to this. Everybody has essentially gone through some type of formal schooling, whether it's homeschooling, public schooling, private schooling, or charter schooling. All of those paradigms of education have been influenced by the dominant culture, which, as we previously mentioned, is steeped in fear and trauma. And so how are kids being treated in schools, particularly students of color and LGBTQ youth? Well, these two populations, students of color and LGBTQ youth, are primarily and most pervasively targeted for small infractions like truancy, holding hands, not having ID. These small infractions, when they happen with other students, are overlooked. But when they happen in students of color and LGBTQ youth, we see a greater inclination to use criminal justice. And so as the infractions or problems in schools, perhaps dress code or some type of aggression might arise, again, in these communities where we see increased police officers, we see more students of color and more queer students, we're seeing far more interaction with criminal justice. And this is naturally to the detriment of all people in all communities because it's literally snuffing out the gifts and talents that youth come into this world with. Now, I would imagine that there are a lot of people who will be listening to this who will be saying, well, this is not happening in my school with my children. Why should we be concerned about this? This sounds like a problem in certain urban schools. That's a great observation, and it has uh, crushed my path once before, much to my shock and dismay. A wealthy-ish mother of a white student said to me, well, you know, it works for us. And I said, what? And this is a social worker, no less, with quite an interest in social justice and public service. And so the answer that I give is that it is affecting everybody in every single community and in every socioeconomic level, regardless of culture, race, or other biological identities. And so we can look, for example, at students that belong to the dominant culture And we can see that wealthier students, white students, have access to far more support, but they also have far more pressure and expectation placed on them in terms of performance, performance in multiple sectors, for example, athletics, music, the arts, 
plus superior academic performance. And so those are pressures that are unrealistic and they're not placed on other students. Moreover, we see very heightened levels of anxiety and suicidality, substance abuse in higher income communities as well. Um, students in higher education are abusing Adderall off the streets in order to get through college. These are the effects of educational trauma in the families that say it's working for us. You make some very strong statements and correlations in this book, like comparing our education system to Nazi Germany and the parallel to the Holocaust and Eichmann's explanation for how they were able to do what they did and the quote-unquote banality of evil. How did you come to that? Because that's pretty strong stuff, and I, I can imagine people are going to be pretty shocked at that comparison. Yeah, I agree with you. Until about a year ago, people were very shocked by that comparison, but now white supremacy is a well-acknowledged problem in the United States. So I think this year it's going to be a little less shocking to some people, but just as shocking to other parts. How did I come to this comparison of the American education system with the Holocaust in Nazi Germany, specifically around Eichmann? So one day, I would say between 2011 and 2013, I was sitting with a teacher from a charter school, and she was talking about how she doesn't believe in standardized tests, though she has to give them all the time as part of her profession, and she said to me, quote, I'm just following the rules and doing my job. And I did a double take and had whiplash when I heard that statement out of her mouth, because she literally stated that she does not believe in or agree with the pedagogical methods that she is administering on huge scale, but that she is blindly following the rules. And that is exactly how Adolf Eichmann described his role in the Holocaust. And it made me see that there are many, many people who uphold these systems. And just like in the Holocaust, not everybody had a hand in mass executions, mass burials, or crematorium. There were other jobs that people did that were clerical and administrative that upheld that system and allowed it to function. And that is exactly what we see here in education. People just following the rules, doing their jobs very well. Eichmann was not a man of, of ill intention. He was a family man providing for his family and doing his job exceedingly well. And that's what we see in every level of government right now. And we also see it among our teachers and administrators and staff. They really work hard to do their job well. Conformity and compliance is the essence. And there was a famous study conducted by Stanley Milgram, which demonstrated the propensity of most people to follow along with this kind of an agenda. Yeah, the Milgram study is notorious for showing us just how far people will go following a person in a position of perceived authority and that people are actually willing to cause harm, shocking other people to varying degrees of pain and suffering, knowingly, just on the authority of a person who's in a position of power. And we see that same effect in education, that people in positions of power are telling teachers and parents what to do with students, and the teachers and parents 
are trying to follow along like good sheeple. And as a result, it's contributing to maladaptive ways being learned and the pathologies among children, youth and young adults is shooting up. And along with all the other trauma that you've been talking about, we have this inordinate focus on testing. And could you talk about how all of this standardized testing traumatized not only children, but also teachers and actually undermines education itself? Yeah, testing traumatizes teachers and students in different ways. I think for teachers, it's actually a lot more threatening because their survival and livelihood is dependent on the test scores of students. In fact, teachers who teach art, music, physical education, they have their performance evaluations based on the test scores of students who took English tests and math tests. So these teachers have their performance evaluations based on students' performance in classes they've never taught. So there's a major mismatch of the way we're using the equation of test scores to evaluate teacher effectiveness. And this came out of a value-added market model where we were looking to see what level of added benefit, value-added, were teachers contributing to the learning environment. And testing is the vehicle through which we try and figure out if teachers are contributing added value. And if they are, their performance is deemed to be significant and they will progress in their careers. So that complexity makes it far more threatening actually for teachers than it does for students. And it undermines teachers, it stifles creativity and innovation because the tests are so very important that heightened focus, time and attention is devoted to them at the expense of other areas. And those other areas are where teachers can thrive, can be creative and can innovate to meet the needs of the students in their midst. Ultimately, we supposedly train teachers to be education professionals and then we tell them what to do instead of asking them to do what they know how to do best. And by we telling them, I mean the curriculum and the standards that they're expected to teach students is how they're told what to do and constrained. As for students, that anxiety in the teachers trickles down to the learning environment, and then it stifles the ease and relaxation, the play and curiosity that students would normally have in the classroom, and it negatively impacts their capacity to learn. Essentially, when we spend a lot of time training students in how to take tests so they can perform well, we eliminate opportunities to train them in other things that they also need. Like, for example, social-emotional learning, which leads to the empathy we talked about in the beginning. Right. So we have the situation where we have in the classroom teachers and students who are all traumatized and, and adversely affected by things like standardized testing and homework that is more and more being assessed at being unnecessary and even overly burdensome so that teachers and children are too stressed out to be able to even connect and have meaningful relationships and to interact in a way that promotes learning. Yeah, essentially you just described how the demands on teachers and students are infecting the learning environment 
and contributing to pathology instead of growth. Mm-hmm. And then there are the issues that are coming to light these days of gender and sexual preference, um, gender fluidity, gender identification, and the trauma that these young people are experiencing because they're not respected for who they are. And in fact, as you mentioned, they're being cited for improper behavior. So talk about the importance of gender and sex education and how our old cultural norms are so damaging to our children and our society. And also talk about when children need to start learning about these things. Right, that's where the question really originates, is when do children need to start learning these things? And I have some pretty elaborate opinions on how sexual orientation, sexual education, gender identity education needs to be carried out, and it needs to begin in kindergarten and continue throughout the lifespan. Essentially, gender identity, it can be fluid for some people, for many people, and for other people it is fairly rigid. But the way we assign gender identity at birth dependent on genitals is actually a very, very complicated and problematic way of seeing gender identity. And really, we need to be showing preschoolers, kindergartners, examples of non-binary people and not just cisgender heteronormative images and role models. And there are ways of exploring this through illustrated books through discussion, through representations. There's a whole host of resources out there for the little ones. I think that we also need to continue exploring sexual education and how it relates not only to sexual health, pregnancy, and conception protection, but also sexual orientation. And that would be one way of indicating to students that a cisgender heteronormative view is not the only way of life and it's not the only human experience. And that would go a very, very long way to mitigating some of the traumas that LGBTQ youth are facing. For example, much higher rate of suicidality. We see in the general population of adults, it's about mm, under 2% tend to have suicidal ideation or attempt suicide at any point in their life. For youth in general, it's about 15%, and for LGBTQ youth, it's about 25%. We see also much greater likelihood of using substances among LGBTQ youth. They are 190% more likely to use substances than cisgender straight peers. We also see that those rates rise very significantly for bisexual and lesbian youth. So even within the LGBTQ community of youth, we see that there are certain subsets that are more targeted and more, much more vulnerable. Our trans youth have suicidality rates at about 40%. In the uh, lay literature, we see that exaggerated to about 50%, but that tends to be a bit of an exaggeration. So these are some of the ways in which the educational trauma that befalls LGBTQ students is actually affecting them in a far greater way than it is our cisgender heterosexual students. Our schools are very controlling and repressive for our children to a large degree, and also we tend to deny them a voice. Our whole system trains us 
to deny that, that children have anything meaningful to offer. And so we don't listen to children. We don't respect what they have to say. And at the same time, we're essentially robbing them of their future by plundering and destroying the environment and creating conflict, not only abroad, but here at home, creating a truly insane environment. And they essentially have to sit by and watch what we do and are forced to accept these same adults as their authority figures who they're supposed to learn from. It strikes me as as pure insanity. And it must be driving them crazy in, in the ways that you have described the results. I mean, I remember reading somebody saying that schizophrenia is a natural response to our culture. Oh, I don't know about schizophrenia being a natural response to our culture. I can understand that someone might say that in our current reality, we promote fairly psychotic ideas, which is what the schizophrenic experience is like. But back to what you were saying about denying students a voice, very few people will recognize, as you do, that there's wisdom, insight, intelligence, and value in that beginner's mind, in the child's curiosity, in their playfulness, and their open-heartedness. And so, as a result, there's that denial of kids having anything meaningful to say. There's a resistance, reluctance, and refusal to listen to kids. And I think you're noticing how, for students to see this, to see the creation of conflict and the depletion of resources in our environment, along with some of the demands being placed on them, may, from a beginner's mind, look insane. Because most people, by the time they are in high school and beyond, they've shifted into conforming and complying with these methods, whether they're positive and effective or not. And there's just a widespread acceptance in our methods. And our methods do include denying students their voice. It seems to me that there are many schools all over the world that have refuted this perspective. Democratic schools, the Sudbury Valley School, um... It has been replicated many times all around the world. It originated as the Summerhill School over 100 years ago in the U.K. And so these are schools that give students a voice, that say, please come and be a manager of our school resources with us. Help us decide who teaches you and how they are managed and disciplined. And please be involved and own the school with us. And as a result of giving kids a voice in their schools like that, we see that they spend much more time playing, much more time exploring, much more time interacting with one another and developing the social-emotional skills that test-obsessed school paradigm does not offer them an opportunity for. So I do, uh, I do see where you're coming from, that there's a bit of insanity around students and that it's for some of them they may see that. We saw the outrage of the Marjorie Stoneham Douglas school, the Florida kids, after the school shooting, they really spoke up, and we started to hear their voice. There's another organization called Youth Voice, which is students in college that disseminate information in the media and to other students. And so we see that students are trying to take a voice, and there are some students that are given a voice, and that's also part of the problem. So I was actually wanting to go into the direction of talking about 
examples of democratic schools and the way they regard children and how they approach education differently from our current educational system and why people in our educational system seem to be ignoring or rejecting those more progressive alternative models. So the alternative and progressive models that uh, utilize democratic methods at any level are underfunded. And at the end of the day, this is just a money game. So the resources are mainly attributed to public school and private schools. And those are funded to the highest level. These alternative and progressive schools tend to have very low tuitions, very limited scholarships. And it's just about trying to make it available to people at the lowest price possible. And yet that doesn't allow for the dissemination of these things. Moreover, when we see large amounts of funding behind education paradigms, we see that they disseminate into the culture more quickly. For example, Common Core State Standards received a $200 million injection of funds by the Gates Foundation in 2002. And before you know it, we had statewide testing implemented from one academic year to another, and everybody, everybody, including parents who were paying private school tuition, knew what common core state standards were. So it's a money-based function. So why are these quote-unquote philanthropists supporting this type of public education, common core, and these systems that aren't working So I would add charter schools to that because they're a form of a public school and many of them, if not all, did adopt the Common Core State Standards. So I think we, we just need to look at Betsy DeVos to answer that question, quite frankly. We see that public education was intended as a public good to promote democracy and to educate the populace so that the workforce would be skilled, essentially. And when wealthy individuals saw that there were opportunities for their students to have different education, they funded that second tier. Then we had this third tier come in, the charter schools, which takes public funds but has less public rigor and restriction. And as a result, charter schools have been able to innovate a little bit more than public schools. And this is where Betsy DeVos comes in because prior to being appointed Secretary of Education, her family had a very heavy hand in philanthropic contributions to education, particularly in the charter environment. And her aim with those infusions of capital were to increase the reach of religious schools. And so even before she became Secretary of Education, she was moving for vouchers, which would allow funding to move around with the student and not be relegated to where they live. And this was a push to fund particularly private and religious schools with public money. So it's a way of wealthy people saying, well, we don't want to continue to pay for it all by ourselves. So since this is going well for us, let us get some public funds in this direction. And so vouchers have been strongly opposed by public schools and teachers unions because they take away money from that public good, that common good. And it depletes the strength and capacity of public schools, which is problematic. But on the other hand, we also see that these charter schools, which would benefit and have benefited from some looser restrictions, have become a money-making industry. 
And so what we see is that charter schools that are able to scale beyond 250 students are able to make a profit. And there's an enormous amount of consulting and profit sharing that goes on around charter school movement. So we see that on the one hand, there's a desire of philanthropists to seem to be supporting good education for all, but at the same time contributing to this capitalist benefit, this money-making venture that charter schools have become. So I think we see an intermingling then of benevolent action, which is what philanthropy is supposed to be, mixed with supporting the emergence of this capitalist-based system around education while depleting the common good. It's a really, really, really public travesty, what we're seeing in terms of funding and how philanthropists are playing a role in moving the funds around as per their values, beliefs, and monetary potential for gain. So it's money that's influencing people who control the strings and levers of the education system and deflecting them away from democratic schools and probably inhibiting the proliferation of of information about the successes of those schools and why those schools are so much more aligned with the principles of a more democratic society. And yet we're creating a school system that is set up much more to be reflective of a controlling, whether it's along religious lines or to the extreme of being like a prison system. Yes, money and power are influencing this to a large extent. It's not just money, it's money and power, because we see some of the funding issues where a lot of money, like the Gates injection of $200 million to Common Core, has had a great impact on it, and the absence of money in democratic schools has contributed to them not flourishing as they could. And yes, there is an inhibition of the proliferation of information about democratic schools. And I think it's very much in keeping with the culture and history of this country. For example, we look at the Electoral College, and from my understanding, it's in place because there wasn't faith in common people and their capacity to vote. And so it was this check and balance that was implemented in order for chosen elected people to be able to decide on behalf of the population when the population didn't vote as was in their best interest. And so that is one example of how this country really isn't democratic at all. People don't turn out to vote, and when they do, they feel their vote is meaningless. And I think that's one of the earliest signs that although this country intended to be a democracy, it really hasn't amounted to a true democracy. And as such, our value system around democratic schools is non-existent. So what's occurring to me is that our education system has become much like our political system. Yeah, but here's the funny thing. The legislation around education often, especially when it comes to funding, has bipartisan support. So where you say our education system is like our political system, yes and no. It's not as divided, even though this democratic piece is like cast off. It's more so that the politics of this nation keep public and private, we'll call it traditional education, 
stagnant. And I would say on purpose. Mm-hmm. That's where the money and power come in. That's where we see the control of disenfranchised communities, marginalized people. And it is through the prison industrial complex is one way of maintaining very serious control over people of color. I mean, I imagine your listeners are aware of the new Jim Crow and the ways in which we are still a very much a segregated society, even since the repeal of Jim Crow. We thought we were in a post-racial society with a black president, only to find out how incredibly racist it was immediately after his administration. My guest is Leanne Gray. She's a psychologist, educator, and speaker on numerous topics, and she's the author of Educational Trauma, Examples from Testing to the School-to-Prison Pipeline. You also refer to our education system as a school-to-prison pipeline. What do you mean by that, and how do children end up in prison through our schools? So the school-to-prison pipeline is not a term that I have coined. I have taken that from the ACLU, and they define it as a systematic pathway for students of color in particular, but we also know that LGBTQ students are very vulnerable to the same school-to-prison pipeline, and it's a way in which they are tracked towards the prison industrial complex. So their educational opportunities, their disciplinary methods, treatment approaches, behavioral programs and paradigms lead specific students into more interaction with criminal justice while they are students. And as a result of having a criminal record in high school, for example, the subset of students are essentially cast off into a parallel universe where they are almost certainly insured social death. They can't get jobs, they can't get into school, they can't rent places to live in because of this criminal record. And the idea that they get a fresh start when they turn 18 is absolutely untrue. For many students, they lose services and support that were available to them as children in the school system, and they have to go find it on the street. And for many students that were involved in criminal justice, gangs tend to provide a lot of that. And so we can see that the methods used in schools, particularly around students of color in lower-income communities and around LGBTQ youth, are systematically steering them towards more criminal justice interaction, which leads to social death. So how is that happening in our school system? Why are so many children falling through the cracks of our system? Or is there a kind of intentional element to this? Yeah, I don't think they're falling through the cracks. I think it's intentional in that The lack of recognition and respect, for example, for LGBTQ people on a whole. The legislation changes a few years ago around bathrooms and schools, protections in schools. These types of changes impact the way the culture, the people as a whole, see trans people and non-binary people, for example. And so it's that type of message from the top legislation that inculcates the values of this country to not support LGBTQ kids, for example. Other economic systems, uh, political systems, human pathways keep their parents poor, keep their parents uninformed, keep their parents stuck with the effects of adverse childhood experiences 
increased mental health problems, increased medical problems as a result of all of these issues being prevalent in our lower income communities and communities of color, we see that they're unable to support their children. And so it's a large and intricate integrated system that promotes all of this. And these kids are essentially being treated the same way in school as they're being treated out on the street. That is that black people, people of color and LGBTQ people are heavily discriminated against and in danger of violence from a a largely white dominant society, including law enforcement. So I think what most of us don't realize is these children are experiencing the same conditions, the same kind of prejudicial environment within schools that they experience out on the street. Yes, school is a replication of the stratification of society. And we see that students are being treated just as poorly in schools as vulnerable communities are being treated out in our culture. Absolutely. And they're also getting targeted in school by law enforcement and teachers who probably feel out of control or afraid or or unable or don't know how to deal with managing students who are traumatized, who are struggling within the system. And so you write about how students of color and LGBTQ youth gradually develop a kind of criminal record within the school itself for relatively minor infractions or things that are targeted towards those disadvantaged youth but rarely applied to white children. We do see the same levels of discrimination in the schools against LGBTQ youth and students of color as they are and their adult counterparts are experiencing out in the community. So there's that parallel. And I think you boiled it down again to trauma and fear, and I would have to agree with you around that, that there's just, it's a traumatized collective of people, even more so now with COVID, right? And so as a result of that fear, we see increased acts of aggression, discrimination, or transfer to criminal justice for students of color and queer students. And so the fear and the trauma that I think underscores that, for students of color, it's different than for queer students. So we'll start with students of color. When a police officer sees a person of color, there's something about their memory that may have been associated with danger, threat, and fear when looking at people who are different from themselves. That fear has translated into discrimination, oppression, marginalization. In some cases, it's still overt, like some of the police violence that we see, and in many cases, it has become a lot more covert. And because it has become a lot more covert, it is harder to identify the places where it is, in fact, overt because we're collectively in denial about it. But I think there's a trauma response happening around law enforcement seeing people of color. Just seeing them approach ignites a memory or stimulates an unresolved memory from the past where they may have had a negative experience. I mean, law enforcement involves a lot of trauma. Just carrying out their work every day is very high risk. And to say that they may have encountered people who were out of control 
who were people of color, who may have been bigger than them, it leaves a traumatic mark on people in law enforcement and first responders. And as a result, they move forward with different experiences as a result of their trauma. When it comes to LGBTQ youth, I think the threat is more existential, less physical safety. And so since the dominant culture is reared to look at gender identity in terms of either male or female, cisgender, it doesn't leave room for other people. As a result, the people who have been raised to think and believe that they themselves are cisgender, the gender assigned to them at birth, then have an existential threat when they see somebody else who's non-binary or transitioning or transitioned. Because that means that this thing, gender, that was assigned to people at birth may be fluid. And that fluidity is highly threatening existentially to some people. And so it's not just that there are non-binary people and some people are trans, but rather some cisgender people feel that even the question of gender fluidity and diverse sexual orientation means that there are questions about what they could be beyond cisgender heteronormative positions. And that is just too, too threatening. And so when we see gay youth, for example, holding hands in schools, they will be cited for a transaction more frequently than straight couples. And this comes out of that existential fear of school staff and administrators being unable to tolerate fluidity and diversity in other people because it signals that their own sexuality and gender may not be as stable as they thought. And that can be intolerant for people. So how do we go about changing things? You're the founder of the Connect Group, an organization that is involved in coming up with innovative new approaches to education. How do we how do we start to change things in our culture and in our education system? So even though the Connect Group closed in 2019, we spent about a decade creating innovative educational solutions for different communities all over the globe. And we really experimented with the different levels of how to address and mitigate educational trauma. And I found that there's many different examples of what I call empathic education for a compassionate nation. And on the most extreme end of empathic education, we would see democratic schools which really give power and voice, respect and dignity to students to engineer their own lives. And then on the other end of empathic education, my students and I have trained teachers in empathic listening and speaking. So just increasing the level of empathy in a school community is an amazing first step in mitigating educational trauma and bringing more empathy to communities, particularly school environments. And then there's like a wide range in between just teaching empathy and valuing it to a democratic environment. I think that design thinking is a really sophisticated blend of both empathy and democratic approaches because we see that when design thinking is implemented in K-12 environments, and it has been for over 10 years at least, we see that the teachers are willing to dissolve power differentials and step into problem solving with the student to examine human-centered problems with empathy. And so it blends 
problem solving, the need to develop critical thinking skills. It blends our current crises. We have a lot of human-centered problems in this country, and it would be more effective if we taught students how to just solve human-centered problems with empathy and critical thinking than to teach them long units of irrelevant biology and history and chemistry when students try to solve human-centered problems using design thinking in partnership with their teachers. Not only do their teachers not know the end result, but their teachers have to act as a guide to facilitate consultation with other experts. And so along the way of trying to solve these human-centered problems, students learn mathematics, history, diverse cultures, diverse approaches, mechanics, physics. There's a whole wide range of integrated, interdisciplinary skills and disciplines that need to be explored to solve human-centered problems. So we have some really beautiful examples of design thinking being steeped into the entire school curriculum, both at the private and public level. It's extremely rare, but the people that are doing it are doing it very well. So then we have to deal with how people are invested in our current system. And could you talk about the need for accountability and and actually taking responsibility for our roles? And I'm speaking of well-intended people in our society who are perpetuating these toxic systems and how they and we can become part of this solution. So I think accountability starts with admitting that we've all been bullies and we've all been bullied and we've all been bystanders. And accountability says, I'm willing to stop that business right here, right now, in whatever way that I can. So, for example, a teacher would admit participating in bullying, being bullied, and being a bystander in their students' and peers' experiences in school settings. And so when a teacher can stand up and say that, as I did in my book on educational trauma, then that's step one towards mitigating this. The next step is just leaning in with an empathic lens and saying, how might I be helpful here? What is it like for you? And to start to listen. And I think that people will be really surprised at what they hear if they stop and listen. I also think that what I'm describing here is near impossible. It's wishful thinking on my part to think that this could ever happen on scale because people are ashamed and they don't want to take responsibility. And the beauty of a system like education or even the Holocaust or politics is that it diffuses responsibility. And so no one person is responsible or feels responsible. And so because people come into these systems being extremely well-intentioned, they don't actually see their role at all. There's a lot of implicit bias among people who understand hegemony, who understand oppression, discrimination, who are themselves victims of it. And yet, Sonio, the desire and objective of systems, of people and organisms, is always going to be to maintain balance and homeostasis. And our homeostasis balance point as a culture is where we hurt one another. We separate, segregate, and rank and sort, and then most resources are given to those on top, and least resources are given to those on the bottom. And this is a common thread. And until we're willing to take accountability for it and stop it, as some people do, and there are you know, glimmers of hope here and there, we're going to continue to do things the way we always have. And teachers will continue to tell me that they are just following the rules to do things the way we always have. 
And you've interviewed numerous teachers about numerous aspects of these issues. What is their own personal insight as teachers working within the system about the nature of the system and the effect that it has on them? So when I interviewed teachers for my book on educational trauma, I was really curious about their perspective on teacher abuse, and I didn't tell them anything about it. I just said, have you ever experienced teacher abuse? What is teacher abuse? And I was shocked that people had very diverse perspectives on what teacher abuse means. For example, one veteran teacher of more than 20 or 30 years in public schools in Los Angeles stated that she and her colleagues had been physically assaulted by students, no surprise, and that that was how she perceived teacher abuse, the abuse of teachers by students and parents, and it it could boil down to physical assault. When I look at teachers' perspectives on this, I also find that they don't feel accountable at all. They feel very powerless, and they they just they recognize the harm that's being done every day. And I think there's a bit of a savior complex for people who come into the profession, especially now knowing what we know about it, because there's this sense that they would tell me is that they, they've tried to do something different, and they defend this fairly significantly with me, that they try and make a difference, they try and focus on the things that work and that are right. And these are the ways, unfortunately, in which teachers are perpetuating the system unwittingly and unintentionally. There was one teacher you interviewed, S.B., who had worked, I think, for about a decade in the public school system and then worked in a Sudbury school, and they they talked about the difference they experienced. Yeah, that one educator had been in the public schools for quite a while and felt burnt out and really harmed by it and could barely function. And then they switched to Sudbury Valley Schools and had been founding members, actually, of various schools. And so this person contributed to the creation of some democratic communities in a variety of different cities. And the person also told me that they really, truly believed in the value of this democratic approach because they saw how beautifully children were being raised up, how they were growing and developing and finding their own trajectories without that influence of the system. It's a remarkable story, actually. Thank you for reminding me. Now, there's an issue that many of these democratic schools and progressive alternative schools tend to be mostly populated by white, privileged children. Talk about the I Promise School. Because that was something that I had not heard about and sounds like a really beautiful model for a school. This LeBron James Family Foundation started the I Promise School, and it is revolutionary because it has a very strong community school support element to it that I hadn't seen anywhere else. Each student receives a bicycle with a helmet, um, uniforms, Parents are entitled to GED classes, and they have opportunities to also get their high school GEDs while their kids are getting educated. There's a food bank on campus. And so this particular school meets the direct needs of low-income communities, of marginalized populations. It serves their needs very, very specifically, very directly, and with a lot of empathy and compassion. And... You also write about how 
low-income communities and communities of color are most susceptible to educational trauma because they have suffered trauma through generations. But they also lack the resources and the kind of communal support to pursue the kind of therapy that they really need to be able to thrive. So the model of the I Promise School, I think, could be looked at and expanded in ways that could help low-income communities and communities of color to deal with the impact of trauma. Yeah, expanding the I Promise model to include mental health care, even on-site medical care, and some other types of treatment that students need to succeed in school could be a very valuable approach. It's just very, very expensive. And I'm thinking about even with the infusion of money from a foundation like the LeBron James Family Foundation, when we add mental health care and medical care, the costs rise very, very significantly. And so on the one hand, the cost of the organization increases steeply and significantly, but the professionals that are brought in to serve those needs are underpaid. And so there's a mismatch between how much it actually costs and how much people are receiving to deliver those services. And as a result, the service rendered in a model like that could be much lower quality. So when we think of low-income communities, marginalized communities being deprived of mental health services, I'm going to say that there's actually a lot of money and intervention out in those communities to combat that. Whenever we see campaigns or organizations that are aimed at at risk, that's a way of saying we recognize that this community is underserved. How might we get in sooner? And so these types of approaches do exist. The problem is they're highly ineffective. And I'm, I'm not sure exactly if it's on the receiving end that there's a lack of trust people have in these approaches or if the service delivery is so far below the cost to the organization that, while well-intended, the net gain isn't there. Well, I imagine there's quite a range in the quality of the therapy yeah. that, that's available out there. I'm reflecting on a conversation I had with a woman who is a therapist who worked with children and said that sometimes she needs to actually provide therapy to the parents in order to facilitate therapy with their child clients. Right. And I think that's not a job thing, but more so the profession. So our theories on mental health treatment have long understood that children are influenced by their parents. And when their parents aren't functioning well, the options and opportunities for children decrease. So... We see it in early Freudian writings where we look at the mother, for example, to see what's wrong with the child. And we see it even in more modern-day writings of Daniel Siegel, the mindful parent, where he encourages parents to just really work on and resolve their problems in order to best serve their children, for example. So any therapist working with children understands that children don't exist in isolation. They exist in the context of their family and community. And so any therapist working with children needs to attune to the parents and see what's going on in that immediate environment, which may be contributing to the symptoms the child is facing or the lack of achievement. Mm -hmm. 
It's his standard of care. Right. And we need to bring that kind of standard of care up to a, a much broader level across the country, perhaps across the world. Well, we have. I mean, we have we have those organizations, too. I mean, I'm thinking about one in Los Angeles that's been around for a really long time, but I know it's not the only one. I've traveled around the country to 60 different cities training mental health professionals and educators in LGBTQ youth, self-compassion for teens, and this topic as well. So you talk about the pedagogy of play in your book, and you say that that's your number one prescription for dealing with educational trauma. Why is play so beneficial for trauma? And again, why is it not a part of our educational system? So play has been eradicated from educational paradigms. We think it's frivolous. We devalue play. And as a result, we deprive children of the activities that they need to develop their nervous systems and in turn have the hardware to learn, remember, regurgitate, apply, and think critically. So as a result of not being able to play, students can't learn very effectively. And we see that the decrease in play has arisen out of the testing pressures and the need to spend more time focused on curricular demands and test-taking demands. So there's less physical education, there's less lunch, there's less recess, there's less after-school free play because parents are trying to either work and so kids are shuffled into indoor programs or they have extracurricular activities to amplify and embellish whatever is going on or not going on in the schools. So as a result, play is my prescription for mitigating educational trauma because it returns the opportunities for students to be self-directed, to be in their bodies, embodied, active, problem-solving, communicating with one another. And it is essentially the piece, I think, that has handicapped this nation the very most. And so many of the mental health therapies are moving towards increased play, joy, and happiness for all ages. In the last 20 years, we've seen the proliferation of positive psychology, which is just showing us that the joyful things we do contribute to mental health and well-being. And play is one of the most joyful things that human beings do of all ages. And many people, including you, talk about how essential play is for children to develop. Um, how do other schools, more progressive schools, integrate play into their curriculum? So there are developmental kindergartens that prioritize play. And there's one educator, I forget where in the country she's located, but she would plan one lesson at a time or one week at a time of lessons for her developmental kindergarten and it would be surrounding the interests and curiosities of the students and it would always be anchored in play. Everything happened through play. Montessori educational paradigms encourage students to explore and inquire with curiosity and a lot of time is devoted to play. So we do have some paradigms where learning takes place with or in the context of play, but we especially see that as students age into middle school and beyond, that play is removed. It's seen as something that's childish. We also see that students are being punished 
for having interest in electronic gaming as a form of play, despite the fact that our entire society is based on technology. There's no reason why students shouldn't play with gaming, but we're holding them back from it. So there are paradigms that have promoted play and learning together. And from my review, they look successful, but for whatever reason, they don't last beyond middle school. In the end, you ask, will we acknowledge the harm of the past and accept responsibility, or will we continue our banal and thoughtless ways of being evil and just follow directions? And you quote Elie Wiesel from his Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech saying, we must always take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. And he adds, the opposite of love is not hate, but indifference. Could you talk about how that relates to what's happening in our schools? Well, we talked earlier about the teachers that are conforming and complying and the families that are conforming and complying, and essentially they uphold the system with their indifference and neutrality. And where that indifference and neutrality are meant to avoid conflict, avoid problems, to increase peace and ease, it actually maintains a status quo that serves the tormentor in the way that violence does. And so when we think about how we might disrupt these systems or what might one person do when something seems as large and as hopeless as this all does, well, taking sides is one thing we can do. It sounds like quite a mountain to climb, but if we all do it, it's really the only way that anything has changed in our human history. For me, personally and professionally, it's been a very big mountain to climb over the last 10, 15 years. And it's been shocking and devastating at times where I didn't think I could recover from what I was discovering. And so when you say that maybe progress will come if we all do something different, actually, I think it really starts with just one person and each one of us as individuals, and we don't have to wait for the collective to do something. Well, that's what I meant, you, was that each one of us, Yeah. but that means really each one of us, and all of us are each one of us. But if it's just you and I today, that's enough for me, because I know that you and I are interconnected, not only with each other in this moment, but with all of your other listeners forevermore, and that these concepts and ideas will ripple out over time. So if it's only two for today... I'm patting myself on the shoulder, and I hope you are, too. So you're suggesting that there's hope. <laughs> <laughs> Just you and me coming together is hopeful to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there are people listening as well. Right. I mean, think about it. At the end of the day, what we're doing here is we're playing with ideas. You and I are doing a form of adult play, and our listeners are going to enjoy the output of our play. And so when people come together in joyful ways, in whatever is playful to them, that is when we are learning and changing, growing, and healing. And so it's okay if it's just little baby steps. It's really okay. Mm -hmm. And things do just start with ideas and the sharing and interplay of ideas. 
Yes, that's right. And that's why I hope my book on educational trauma is the worst one ever written. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully things will will look better from here. Yes, I'm hopeful. It seems as though it has to go up from here. But uh, that's been said before. I I remember saying the same thing decades ago, that it couldn't get any worse. Yeah. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, four years ago when Trump was elected, I became extremely hopeful. And I looked around and I was like, now the world is going to see what I see. And in fact, other people do see largely what I had been seeing in the decade prior. And I think now, even more so, we're at another turning point. And with COVID, all of our usual normal ways of functioning have been devastated. And so we're at a very, very right moment for innovation and creation. Mm-hmm. Right. Crisis is the mother, well, it creates opportunities. And yeah, I agree. I actually thought the same thing about Trump's election, that finally the ugly head of the beast that has been kept under wraps is finally rearing its head out in the public eye, and we can't help but see our shadow and learn and grow and move on in some way, even if it takes four years or possibly even eight years to learn that lesson. Yeah, precisely. With Trump's election, we got to see our collective shadow rear up. And it's really hard to ignore at this point. And like you mentioned, it might take four or eight years. I was a little bit surprised at how long it's emerging to come to this head. But COVID was a special additive to this dynamic that nobody can really compute in the moment. Yeah, it's hard to see the value in in some of these dark events. I see it. Yeah. I hope you see it with me. I do. I definitely do. I have become essentially very optimistic about things, even in the midst of of how dark it gets, and even in the midst of great despair and even rage. Well, that integration of the positive and the negative is where health lands. And I think that we're needing to integrate some positive pedagogical approaches and balance out some of the negative ones and minimize them, because right now we're just heavily emphasizing negative approaches in education. So for people out there who want to make a difference in our educational system, do you have any suggestions? Well, I think it starts with listening really well, listening to children, listening to ourselves, our own hearts, listening to each other. Empathy starts with a curiosity about other people, not so much a knowing of their perspective. And so it's okay if we don't know exactly what's going on with everybody else, but to just pause and listen would be one. To focus more on cultivating empathy for self and other, I think would be two. And then finally, to really examine what does it mean to be a citizen of a democratic country and how democratic is the society. Yes, that's the crux, where our inner work meets a sense of outer responsibility and what we can contribute. Yes, indeed. And that's an often difficult and perplexing place to find ourselves. How do we deal with that? I mean, how do you suggest people deal with that that tension between doing our inner work and yet feeling that the outer work is also needed? How do we integrate the two? Because often 
people will deny one for the other? Well, I think that one can attribute more focus and attention to the inner work with trust and faith that as one heals internally and takes care of their own internal wounds, that it will ripple out positively to other people. And that when we start focusing on other people before ourselves, that's where the mistake really lies. Because people can quickly become depleted, experience compassion fatigue, secondary trauma as a result of devoting personal responsibility to outer work. So whenever possible, I default to inner work as a priority, understanding that true and effective good inner work recognizes how interconnected we all are and feels as much personal responsibility for self as other. I'm totally there with you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I know you are, Tonio, because I've listened to your episodes on shamanic healing and healing with psychedelics, so I know exactly where you land with that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've enjoyed this conversation very much. Thank uh, you. Likewise. My guest has been Leanne Gray. She's a psychologist, educator, and speaker on self-compassion, mindful awareness, LGBTQ youth, gender, and gifted in special education. She's the founder of the Connect Group, which offers innovative approaches to education and the co-creator of Empathic Education for a Compassionate Nation, and the author of this new book that we've been talking about, Educational Trauma, Examples from Testing to the School to Prison Pipeline, how can people find out more about your work? Uh, they can find me at com. I've written a number of articles on Huffington Post, and I'm also on Twitter at Education Trauma. Those are just a few places. And is there anything that you're working on right now? Any new projects? Um, no, not at the moment. I'm just working on spreading these ideas and connecting with people to see what ways we can affect change through awareness. Well, I wish you and all of us the best of luck in this realm. And again, it's been wonderful to talk with you, and thank you so much. Thank you, Tonio. It's been lovely talking with you, too. I appreciate all of your work, and I ask that you keep on keeping on for the greater good of all. Well, that's why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Much appreciated. Be well, Tonio. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.